One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Monday, September 24th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today we're talking about how the legal weed industry is booming, but it's also shutting out many black and brown entrepreneurs. While the legal marijuana business in the U.S. is currently an $11 billion industry, less than a fifth of these business owners identify as racial minorities, and only 4.3% of the owners are black. As a comparison, 13.4% of the general U.S. population identifies as Black. And while there are equity programs popping up in cities like Oakland, they're not all working in full force. So today, we've got Vice Executive Editor Dory Carr-Harris speaking with journalist Benjamin Goggin on the story. With the legal weed business starting to really take off and boom as more states start the process of actually legalizing weed. You wrote in a piece this week about the barriers that people of color are facing to enter this business, you know, legally and in a sort of financially stable way. What are some of the initial blockers to getting new entrepreneurs, as they're called, into the market? Right. The primary barrier is money. There is a racial wealth gap that is well-studied and well-documented, generally paraphrased. Um, white people can and do make more money in the United States than black people do. Part of the legal weed boom is attaining licensure. Um, so in states where it's legal, you're required to get licenses. In New Jersey, for instance, the medical business uh, requires a $20,000 application fee to to get a license. Even worse, or a better illustration of the money that it costs to start up one of these businesses, the people applying for these licenses are super well capitalized. Um, so a few people I talked to for this article are trying to enter the New Jersey marijuana business and they're putting $15 million into their business that hasn't even been approved yet. That's crazy. And yeah. is that personal investment or where is their funding coming from generally? Right. So I talked to um, two of the most successful black marijuana entrepreneurs. One of them is Wanda James, who was a restaurateur in Colorado, and she started the first legal dispensary started by a black person in Colorado. So she already had capital from her restaurant business. Um, She's also getting venture money. Al Harrington, who she's partnering with, is a former NBA star. (laughs) So he, I think his net worth is $40 million. Um, So they're kind of covered. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But for some of the other people who are trying to enter this business, who, you know, have solid business plans and trying to make a go of it, what are some of the avenues that they've been exploring to get funding? Is there a 
support sort of on a municipal level? Are they trying to go just to angel investors? What are some of the strategies? Right. Um, So one of the main strategies I encountered was actually entering the market on a lower level. So a lot of the black entrepreneurs that I talked to are making consumables, um, so like edible goods um, or, you know, blunt wraps, something like that. And so with that business, you don't have the higher barriers to entry. When you look at dispensaries or businesses that require higher levels of capital, it's it's a more political effort. So in the states where dispensaries are allowed, they give out handfuls of licenses. So usually you have to be well-connected, um, you have to be well-funded and illustrate that you can do this. So really you don't find many black owners of dispensaries. I think that there's a figure that 4% of marijuana business owners are black. Um, When you compare that to the black population in the United States, which is 13%, um, there's a huge disparity. And especially, you know, I think there's this promise or there's this idea that the marijuana industry can be a form of reparations, as Cynthia Nixon said. Um, you know, it's really romantic. Like, marijuana laws were used um, as a form of oppression for so long and still are in the United States. So I think people like to think that that can get turned on its head and it could be it can uplift the black community economically. But with dispensaries and larger marijuana businesses that are actually going to reap the profits... Um, It's incredibly hard for Black people to enter. And I think one of the interesting threads that you pull out is that there are actually equity programs now being developed in certain areas, and you talk about Oakland specifically, where you know, subsidies are being given or licenses that we've talked about having this really high price tag are being given to business owners who might not be able to get them. So maybe you can describe a little bit about what that process is. And then we can talk about, as you've reported, how it's actually creating more complications rather than less. Yeah. um, So Oakland was the first racial equity program or community equity program um, in the United States that is attempting to bring some of this marijuana money back into the communities that have been affected by the drug war. There are some popping up in other states and other municipalities in California, but Oakland is the farthest along in its progress. The general idea was to provide licenses to people who have been adversely affected um, by the drug war. So people who fall in certain police beats in Oakland, um, people who have had a prior conviction, people who fall in a certain um, economic bracket. So they had a general lottery there were four winners and they handed out, you know, these licenses kind of at random. And they were given to people who, you know, fell, fell um, in these descriptors. The problem is that to start a business anywhere in America, you need a lot of money. And a lot of people, these people don't have money. So Oakland's solution to this was that you had to have a general partner with you, apply with you. So the, all the equity applicants and all the equity winners applied with someone with more capital, essentially. Marshall Crosby, um, the person who I talked to who was an equity winner, originally he partnered with um, a person named Amber Center, who is a black marijuana activist and a patrepreneur herself. Um, And she was originally going to provide training and capital. In the story, I go into how a large, well-capitalized, majority white-owned business, Have a Heart, um, essentially swooped in and took the general partnership from Amber, who is a black member of the community, and is partnering with him instead, basically because they have more money and can offer more resources. And what I found in the article um, and in my reporting was that 
they're also partnering um, with nine other equity applicant winners in all stages of the distribution cycle for marijuana. So they're essentially vertically integrating Oakland's weed business, but they're not an Oakland company and they're they're majority white owned. Wow. So basically, Oakland's weed business is really just owned by Have a Heart. <laughs> well, I mean, not totally. Right. But they're they're making every effort to really capitalize in this market and absorb the majority of the profit. Right. So basically what happened was Have a Heart came in, they drafted a new very lengthy contract for Marshall and they applied with him and then the city of Oakland actually found that the contract would have like disenfranchised him essentially. They created different companies and there was a lot of sort of contractual gymnastics that happened um, that would have decreased Marshall's profits. So actually their initial application was rejected and so Oakland put in a floor of 51% ownership for the equity applicant. So on some level, like Marshall will have ownership. Um, I was not able to obtain the actual contract. Mm. Um, all I have heard was from Marshall himself, have a heart, and the city. But the city confirmed that Marshall owns at least 51% of the business. But when you think about it, you know, that's significant for the community, but you know, 50% of the earnings of Oakland's marijuana business going towards a Seattle company that's owned by a white guy. That's not great for an equity program. Yeah, absolutely. And so what do you think are some of the either regulations or things about the industry and the way it currently works or is starting to evolve that we could change and shift to make it more equitable and to allow more people um, to actually gain a foothold? Yeah, um, I think that, you know, Oakland wanted to rely on pre-existing businesses and um, like pre-capitalized people, essentially, to help out these applicants, which isn't a bad idea. But if we have the goal of, you know, creating reparations right through the marijuana industry, you have to look at who the money's coming from. So, you know, I think a good policy would be to, you know, also vet the general applicant or the partner, you know, are they from the community? Um, what is their leadership structure? Things like that. There are a few groups that are trying to address the racial inequity in marijuana ownership um, or marijuana business ownership. Amber Center, one of my subjects, she co-founded a group called Supernova Women that is essentially trying to get black women into positions of leadership in marijuana companies. Amber herself is, you know, a great example of this. She also represents the efforts of a group called Cannabis Cultural Association, whose focus isn't on the dispensary level. It's instead on getting people involved in the lower levels. I think a lot of Black activists see the hurdles of entering the dispensary business as too high for minorities and minority, minority communities. Interesting. So based on your reporting and, and your sort of knowledge of the industry in general, do you think that these sort of grassroots movements and organizations will be able to stand up against, you know, extreme capital or non-minority companies? Um, it's hard to tell how successful this will be. I think that Oakland's program represents a good level of consciousness of the issue. And in San Francisco, they've, they're creating um, another equity program. Um, but a common complaint is that, you know, these equity programs are only coming after people complain about them and after white people have started businesses that come to dominate. I think for the big money involved in marijuana, 
I think it's too entrenched now to really be a form of reparations. And when you look at, you know, where all the money is coming from for marijuana now, it's coming from the finance industry. There's a company called Tilray, which is a medical marijuana company in Canada, whose valuation just hit $21 billion in the stock market. And when you think of the the people who are behind that, um, including Peter Thiel, <laughs> it's usually um, the prototypical white finance bro. Mm-hmm. Or a Silicon Valley investor. Yeah. So for consumers in the industry, are there things that people who want to buy these products can do on that level to help business owners of color? Is there any sort of way to gain awareness about who your local dispensary owner is? Um, Yeah, I mean, it just involves simple research. You know, there are a lot of product lines that are owned by black people. The marijuana industry is you know, it's burgeoning and also it is becoming well-documented and well-reported. So it's not that hard to find, find out who owns your dispensary, who owns this product line. There's a big push in the black community to invest in black-owned companies um, in the marijuana industry. But I will say it's becoming harder, becoming a little harder to find out who, you know, owns these companies or who are behind these companies, which I found. Um, And this wasn't in the article, but uh, have a heart they hired uh, a COO who is black and who now has shares in the company. And it is still majority white owned. But I found in my reporting that I got significant pushback from the company labeling Have a Heart as a white owned company because, you know, a few minorities have a few shares of stock. So as legalization progresses and becomes wider spread across various states in the U.S., do you see this as a a really positive step for communities of color? Um, It's being billed that way. Um, But I think that if you look at recent legalization efforts or recent legalization instances, um, it actually hasn't really um, panned out as benefiting communities of color. In D.C., marijuana was just legalized. And the year after it was legalized, um, arrests for certain marijuana crimes, including public consumption and like illegal sale, like street sale, quadrupled. And when you looked at the racial breakdown, 75% of the people who were arrested were black. So from a larger perspective, when you look at systemic racism in the United States, um, the drug war was a huge part of it in terms of criminalizing black people and over-policing. But that over-policing seemingly still exists and will exist. Interesting. And so when we're sort of looking forward to the future of this industry, do you see a time when in the near future when it will become more equal? I think that there are a few industry players and organizations who are recognizing this problem um, and attempting to address it. And I can only commend those efforts. Um, I think that Oakland's a great example. And a great, a great way to learn about how to implement these programs. In terms of capital, I don't have a good outlook, but I think that, you know, as we study and as we report on um, the continuation of racist policing and, you know, how marijuana's money is falling into white hands, we can better address those problems. You can read the full article on free.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening, and make sure to tune in again on Wednesday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.